so swimming to me is, is my physical exercise it's my mindfulness it's my meditation you're thinking about your breathing all the time you get into a rhythm you close in on yourself some of my best and some of my worst ideas like writing books and things like that have all come in my mind while I'm swimming and also for me it's a really good digital detox because like a lot of people these days I'm addicted to my phone and things like that so I'm actually going for a six seven hour swim is really good for me mentally I got called arrogant at one point because I don't prepare to fail I prepare to succeed so I went and did a channel training preparation course because I wanted to fast track my training and get a, get a qualifier in which is six hours for English channel and going around the room it was like an icebreaker where you introduce yourself and say what your aims were for that year and it was I am going to attempt to swim the English channel or I will attempt to and I just said I'm swimming the channel in July mm. they were like how can you be so you know because I'm doing it there's no point even discussing that failure is an option here Welcome to Melia's What Does Good Look Like, the podcast that brings you healthy care experts with unique insights into what good looks like and what you can do to get there. I'm Anna, and I'm co-hosting this podcast together with Will. If you want to learn more about us, Melio, or find links to our previous podcast episodes, visit meliohealth.co.uk. Are you one of those people whose biggest exercise challenge is getting it done? Or perhaps you have a big life challenge that you'd like to take on, but the thought of it just feels daunting and you just don't know where to start. Then I think today's guest can give you both inspiration and a bunch of practical tips. Dr. Nick Murch is a highly experienced cold water and open water swimmer, as well as a consultant physician in acute medicine and medical education at the Royal Free Hospital in London. We've invited him on the podcast because we wanted to learn more about how he manages to combine a career as a marathon swimmer alongside his highly demanding work in acute medicine. How does he motivate himself to get up in the middle of the night to go cold water swimming? And how does he motivate himself to keep going way past the point where most other people would have stopped? Even if you're not into swimming, I think you'll find the next half hour or so very interesting. Nick will give you tips on how to break down a daunting challenge into bite-sized tasks and the way small improvements compound over time. We'll of course also cover his experience of COVID working in acute medicine and what he's learned about the disease so far. Thank you for joining us today, uh, Nick. It's a, it's a real pleasure to meet you. We normally start off these conversations just trying to find out a little bit more about you. Uh, so we always have the question, how would you describe your job to a layperson, and what got you interested into this area? And I think we can also add for you how did you get into, we'll talk about it in a bit, your open water and cold water swimming? Hey, thanks for inviting me. So I'm a consultant in acute and general medicine, and I run a team of about 20 junior doctors and some nurses and a few other people um, at any one time. And we look after patients that have been referred into the hospital, either, either by um, the emergency department or by GPs. So they get referred to my team, my team sort them out, and then I turn up and uh, take all the glory. Um, <laughs> when they've done all the work. Um, I've also got a sub-interest in simulation training, so I help run our simulation centre and medical education. So I sort of lead on education locally and a, a tiny bit nationally, particularly in the field of acute medicine. For open and ice swimming, um, I've always um, tended to be on the slightly larger size. So I've relied on my physical traits to help me. Um, as a kid, I swam for a club, but I wasn't really very good. Um, but um, 
what I found was you get dragged up to the mean. So if you surround yourself with people that are really good at things, you get dragged up to an acceptable standard. So I then went to university in Cardiff and took up water polo. Um, again, age 21, took up a new sport, which is probably not very sensible. But I relied on my relative speed and long arm span. And uh, in fact, I'm difficult to move around in the water to play that up to a sort of national, potentially a semi-international level. Um, and then I did what all water polo players do when they get too fat to play water polo. They go to open water swimming where you can rely on well, first of all, I had a wetsuit, but that shrunk in the wash every year or in, in the cupboard. Every time I took it out each year, it got smaller and didn't fit me anymore. So I, I went from neoprene to my natural bioprene and started doing some um, open water races and actually found that I was quite good at it. You say you're pretty good at it, but I mean, your achievements are pretty remarkable. Maybe you can talk us through quite what you've achieved. You've, you've done a number of things in which more people have been up Everest and have actually completed some of the uh, achievements that you have. Yeah, I mean, I was recently described by an open water swimming as one of the preeminent swimmers in um, open water in in the UK, which was uh, very impressive when I looked up what preeminent meant, because I didn't actually know. But that was quite a nice thing to, to hear. So marathon swimming and open water swimming is uh, romantically and historically without a wetsuit um, after Captain Webb swam the channel so everything's under channel rules and in inverted commas so generally it's just a pair of trunks and uh, goggles hat and some earplugs and that's about all you can get away with so on the basis of that I decided in 2015 to take up some April swimming got a charity place to try and swim the length of Lake Windermere which is 10 and a half miles and so I did that w- without a wetsuit that was the first swim that I did and the new definition of a marathon swim is 10 kilometres because that equates to roughly what they do in the Olympics and what a top level swimmer will do, which will equate with what Mo Farrell would run uh, for a marathon. So 10 kilometres is a new definition of a marathon swim. But I've always stuck with the old fashioned definition, 10 miles. So Windermere being 10.5 miles, that was my, my entry point, so to speak. How long did that um, take you? Sorry, just to give people a perception. That took me about four and a half hours. I was the first skins person home, and skins means without a wetsuit. Right. So I took I took a wetsuit um, with me, uh, planning on doing a wetsuit, and then I just had this idea that if I could swim Windermere, I might have a go at the channel, which is about twice the distance. And then the night before, I didn't feel very well. I was up all night, not feeling terribly well, and I thought, oh, I'll give it a pop. And we met my kayaker because you have a support kayaker and she took one look at me my 20 stone six foot five frame and went well you don't really look much like a swimmer um, <laughs> are, you sure, are you sure you want to do this without a wetsuit so she agreed to put my wetsuit on the back of her um on the back of her kayak and then after about a mile she gave me a thumbs up and said well you can actually swim can't you um so I was the first skins person home and came I don't know in the top 10 for all the people if you've got a wetsuit it's worth about 10 percent five to ten percent of your performance over about 100 meters and that probably increases over time because with a wetsuit obviously you keep warmer but also they're more um aquadynamic so they're faster through the water than swimming without one so um that was that was a real big um, confidence boost to me that I'd, I could sign myself off as a marathon swimmer. Um, and I'd said to myself that if I did that in 2015, I'd try the English Channel as soon as possible. Most people um, would train for two years for this, but I did it in about nine months, um, the training for it. But it just becomes everything that you do. Um, so I trained for that down at Dover with the Dover Channel Training Group 
And then while I was there, I thought, wow, I mean, the English Channel is 20, 21 miles at the shortest point. And as you said, about 2,000 people have done it now, which is about half have climbed Everest. And with Everest, obviously, you've got oxygen and things. Mm. Um, with the channel, you don't. So I thought, well, while I'm doing this, I'd always had this inkling to do the English Channel. I thought this option came up to swim Lake Geneva two months later, which was twice as far. And I thought, oh, that sounds pleasant. That sounds warm. Pretty consistent, doubling twice, it. doubling it every time. <laughs> so that sounds good. And my mum's uh, family were originally Swiss. So I had this sort of um, relationship with a uh, this romantic idea of swimming in warm water in the Swiss sunshine between the mountains. Um, so I turned the English Channel into a training swim for Geneva. Um, and I had two months in between and I got at the English Channel and said that is the hardest thing I've ever done and that took me 11 hours 40 in pretty terrible conditions mm. um, so two months later I had to go swim Geneva and swimming Geneva in fresh water is completely different to swimming in seawater it's a different body position and you just swim your, your bum drops in the water because you're just not as buoyant um in fresh water and so it's actually i find it harder to swim yeah. in, in fresh water okay. so that was 2016 and then i took a year out because i was physically mentally and emotionally broken by geneva that took me 32 hours i thought it was going to oh take 24 uh, the first half took me 11 hours so i was perfectly on time and then I swam into a storm and um, conditions were described as unswimmable. And at points I was just on like a watery treadmill and uh, hypothermic, hypoglycemic and generally unhappy with the whole world. And my shoulder went. So uh, the second half took me about 21, 22 hours. Um, so about eight or nine hours longer than it should have done um, swimming through the night. So I swam eight o'clock in the morning through to five o'clock the next day mm. occasionally falling asleep which is what i do when i'm swimming anyway and my crew know that because my stroke rate drops off um and at the end of that i was physically mentally emotionally broken as i said and i had to have a year out and um, try and rebuild my shoulder which had um quite a terrible injury at the time wow so that's 2016 so 2017, I took a year out and um, coached my wife to swim the channel. Um, I said, you, you can have a year, do whatever you want. She said, I want to swim the channel. I went, oh, God, okay. So I had to train her up and coach her up to swim the channel. And then um, 2018 was back to my year. And I was like, okay, what shall I do? And then I heard about the North Channel, which is like the English Channel, but colder, um, harder, worse tides, and really, really bad jellyfish called the lion's mane jellyfish. Um, yeah. And everyone told me it was a really bad idea to do it. So I thought, well, that's a perfect idea to do it. So I went and did that in 2018. And then two weeks later, I went back to Geneva to do a relay with some friends and family. Um, How was it going back miles. Was it psychologically? It must have been. Really difficult. Uh, my memory has shut it out overnight. Like the overnight, I can't really remember. So actually, it was really good to go back and face it. But actually, it was terrifying at the same time. I mean, my sister crewed for me and sat there and watched me for the entire 32 hours. And she said it's the best thing and the worst thing she's ever done, the solo. And going back with the relay to share it was really nice. But I hadn't really recovered from the North Channel. And I was sort of getting flashbacks as I was swimming. But I think it was important part of the healing process for me. Mm. Yeah. And then 20... Where we in 2019 was my wife's turn and she said oh, I want to do a really nice swim 
so we agreed to go to Catalina Island which is just off of Los Angeles and swim from Catalina to the mainland um, which we could do as a tandem which was a horrible swim in all honesty everyone told me how lovely it was you know I thought I had visions of swimming in sunshine and etc but it's basically shark infested waters and murky oh. smog that comes up and over and you start off at midnight and they said jump in and as I jumped in there's a sea lion on the hunt and it's shark breeding ground so definitely before you ever you know if you were to ever swim it I would recommend not googling shark attacks Catalina because it's <laughs> one of the number one shark attack cases uh, in California. But you must have had a so, plan for them there must have the crew looking out for well I guess you can't see them in the dark though so you've got well you've got sonar that would pick them up with that, when you're swimming, I didn't enjoy that swim one little bit in all honesty. It's got had nothing to going for it, that swim, in my opinion. Um, but when you're swimming along, first thing I heard was a submarine pinging. I thought I was hallucinating. So I had fallen asleep about 50 times. Um, and it turns out there was a submarine there that was pinging. Um, and then we saw these fins coming up and I thought, oh, here we go. And it turns out they were dolphins. So we had three or four pods of dolphins swimming with us, which didn't lighten my mood I was that miserable mm. um and then at the end we swam in with a seal which was relatively pleasant but also I just didn't enjoy anything of that day but I think that's part of I think that's part of um open and marathon swimming is that you like to suffer and you like to endure and you just want to get through to the finish yeah um, I have to say because just listening to you it seems like I guess everyone is not going to start doing open water swimming but you certainly seem to have this ability of just motivating yourself and just keep going past the point when most people would have given up. I think a lot of it comes from, and I've done a few talks about how medical training is perfect for this, because medical training, I mean, an on-call for me is 13 hours. That's the same as swimming the channel. The average swim, when I say the average swim, obviously the average thing is not to do it. But the average swim time for the channel is 13 hours, and that's exactly the same time as an on-call shift at work. Apart from the fact that when you swim in the channel, somebody feeds you every hour, somebody checks on you every hour, and you can have a pee whenever you want. And that's often something not afforded to you in work. Um, and my old-fashioned, it just so happens, my old-fashioned on calls when I was a more junior doctor would be you start at 8 or 9 o'clock morning, and you might work through the night, and you finish at 5 o'clock the next day. And that is exactly the right training for Geneva, because that's exactly what I had to do, just breaking it down. If you think about it in its entirety, so if you think about the English Channel being 21 miles, I can't appreciate that. That's an awful lot. I can't, I can run 21 miles. I've tried, but I can swim it because you break it into 21 one-mile swims. And a one-mile swim is quite manageable. you just got to do it 21 times. And the same for Geneva. I thought it was going to be 24 hours or 26 hours. And that was 24 or 26 one-hour swims. It turned into 32. But when they stopped me at 24 and I was hallucinating and unhappy with the world and not really making any progress, and they said, if you keep going at this rate, it's eight more hours. And this was at the stage I should have finished. I rationalised that in my head at the time, went, that's only a third of what I've already done. I can do that. And I whinged the whole way. It was you know, <laughs> not much fun for anybody on the boat. And I hated everybody on the boat. And I was, you know, blaspheming and whatever else. But it's about how you break it up. So... Geneva was meant to be 26 one-hour swims and I devoted one hour per letter of the alphabet so the first hour was A, the second hour was B, 
and people would ask me questions and in my mind I'd be thinking of songs and singing you know band names or thinking about sports stars and you know lots of things that would go through your mind and I don't really remember past then but when your memory memory goes and you're hallucinating at what point do they say that this is enough we're going to stop we're going to pull you out so the boat the boat was going to pull me in Geneva and in lots of swims they would have pulled me if they know what's going on in your head um so you don't want to ruin you you don't want to you know give up the chance of something you've been training for for the past year you're less likely to pull yourself than somebody else's but I I do know people that have swum themselves into intensive care um and there was a swimmer the same day that I went there was a swimmer uh, for the English Channel who who went back um, and tried a different day and sadly he passed away so mm-hmm. you you have to approach this sport knowing um and the North Channel my sister again crewed for me she's a physiotherapist um I had to approach that knowing full well there was a high likelihood I would end up in intensive care because that's what a lot of people have just in the sheer physical exertion or so the bloods that are done on people uh, when they come out of a an event I was, I was looking at some data from a triathlon versus sort of a um you know long distance triathlon so basically an Ironman versus a triathlon you you come out with blood tests which are consistent with you having been in some sort of traumatic event and the blood tests I've seen for people coming out of channel swims um, who've been pulled or they've been admitted to hospital are consistent with them being in a major road traffic accident. They've got heart damage, kidney damage, uh, dehydration, um, their body is in you know shock into all intents and purposes. And that's that's the way it is. So if you add in the North Channel, where the gentleman who tried to go the same year as me ended up in intense, he's gone to intensive care twice. He ended up in intensive care with a punctured lung, uh, allergic reaction to the jellyfish stings and mm. hypothermia with a core body temperature down to about 24, um, mm. whereas normal is 37. My sister had, unbeknown to me, um, arranged a heli back if, if required. She'd got a helicopter evacuation planned, which is not unknown. Have you done any blood work yourself after, before or after any of these events to see the difference? Not myself, no, um, because I think it would scare me, in all honesty. I mean, the, the blood tests that I've seen from other people, and I, I, I tend to get some people sending me them from around the world now, show that particularly there's this fallacy that you ought to take on pure water. And particularly having, I, I previously worked on the London Marathon medical care at the HD at the finish of the London Marathon. And if people just take on pure water and sweat out salt mm. and don't replace it, they drop their salt level by dilution. And yeah. I've seen lots of people do that with channel swims. I've seen there being muscle breakdown where the body's muscles are just breaking down and then that can cause kidney damage with dehydration and things. So the blood tests are sometimes concerning. I have seen other people whose blood tests have been relatively normal. So it seems to be a susceptibility. It's probably more than one thing, probably dehydration plus uh, physical exertion plus, you know, the hypothermia, which will cause muscle breakdown, plus jellyfish, plus lots of other things. So the cumulative effect of all of them together. I mean, when you explain all this, it becomes clear, obviously, that there must be a huge amount of planning that goes into these swimmings, swims. Uh, and you must have some form of strategy around your, your training, your nutrition, your mental health. Can you talk us a little bit about how you prepare? A lot of 
open water swimming is sort of um, urban myths or old wives tales so to speak it's it's not based on a huge amount of evidence people say this is my information from n equals one and i'm not going to say you know this is how everybody else should do it i think you need to do what works for you so from my point of view it's about um it's about mental well-being um swimming i've built it into my routine so i don't do long distance swimming when i was training for the channel in geneva i did really long distance swims training swims up to seven or six hours and that's sort of the what you should do a couple of before you do the channel that's the sort of the story since then i work more on speed and um, cold endurance over the winter some technique work and avoiding injury and that's one of the major things moving forward so a lot of it's mental preparation there's a huge amount put into the physical preparation for these things but i train myself mentally most days i will imagine success i will imagine so when you swim the channel you try and get a pebble that you're going to pick up and put down and then you can go into a pub and sign your name on the wall same with the north channel so i've I've mentally gone through all of that, I've mentally gone through what it's going to feel like getting out of the water. I got called arrogant at one point because I don't prepare to fail, I prepare to succeed. So I went on a swim trip, uh, there's, there's a few swim safari sort of companies, and I went and did a channel training preparation course because I wanted to fast track my training and get a, get a qualifier in, which is six hours for English Channel and a certain temperature and going around the room it was like an icebreaker where you introduce yourself and say what your aims were for that year and it was i am going to attempt to swim the english channel or i will attempt to and i just said i'm swimming the channel in july mm. and they were like how can you be so and i just said you know because i'm doing it there's no point even discussing that failure is an option here i i will be swimming the channel and then mentally preparing so over the winter, part of that will be I will drive with the car doors open. Uh, car, not car doors open. That'd be <laughs> That'd be the car windows open in the middle of the winter. I will. I would have been stood out in my garden in just a pair of speedos, um, you know, Neighbors. in the snow. Um, <laughs> apologies to the neighbours. Um, and so I'm just, I'm just getting used to the fact that. I, I embrace being uncomfortable. And in fact, I, I'm always been a hot person, but my thermostat is now completely misset. I know friends who've not had a hot shower in four or five years. They only ever have cold showers as part of it. A lot of people have ice baths. I've never gone to that stage, but I, I personally will get myself as cold as possible, as regularly as possible, and just build that into my, into my routine. These days, I know, sorry, this is a weird question, but it's just, it's a matter of interest. Even today, after you've prepared yourself for this, is it still pretty uncomfortable getting into the cold water at first? Well, at the moment we're in lockdown, so I can't. But last week, in fact, the weekend I did swim. But um, last week I went for a cold water swim here. When I say cold, it was 10 degrees, uh, the water, 10 degrees Celsius. Um, the air was six degrees. Um, I have swum with ice on the surface before. I'm not one of these people. So the theory is that you should walk into cold water and splash yourself and get your body used to it. And there's a mammalian dive reflex and lots of other things that you shouldn't do. And when you fall into cold water, there's a cold water shock and you breathe out automatically. I myself am mentally get myself ready for a swim. And actually I was in a cold water gala at the beginning of the year where we were using internal probes um to check our temperatures and possible that i can raise my body temperature before i get into cold water that's what it seemed to suggest 
so that is obviously a mental thing that I can do via my hypothalamus and my brain that I can just increase my core body temperature so I actually jump in straight in one go and push off and just swim and control my breathing and that's the key thing it's about controlling your breathing and the breathing is what controls all of your um controls your stroke so swimming to me is is my physical exercise it's my mindfulness it's my meditation you're thinking about your breathing all the time you get into a rhythm you close in on yourself some of my best and some of my worst ideas like writing books and things like that have all come in my mind while i'm swimming and also for me it's a really good digital detox because like a lot of people these days i'm addicted to my phone and things like that so actually going for a six seven hour swim is really good for me mentally Mm. wow that's absolutely amazing i think you know a lot of people still struggle just to get get off to the gym Uh, maybe these days it's not always that easy when they're closed (laughs) but uh i I don't go to the gym don't get me wrong uh, no no (laughs) but but I, i think it's clear that perhaps a common problem is that instead of just having that mental ability to focus on success you spend more time finding reasons not to go um and it's clear that you don't even give yourself the option it's just this is going to happen yeah it's built into my timetable so i get up early to avoid traffic i drive early and then i get to the pool as it opens and then i get to work previously i would have been in work early working but four or five years ago i just thought now i'm going to take some time for myself i'm going to not go into work as early as i was and i'm going to just give myself half an hour a day and that's all it is half an hour maybe three four times a week with cold water swimming and then I'll get one or two sessions in a, in a pool with a club where I'll be pushed for speed work and that's how I mix things up so it's part of my um, routine and it is I get out of bed in the morning and I go for a swim and that that's what I do so I don't think about it if I think about it I don't think I'd do it yeah mm. do, do you still get the buzz from the 30 minutes of cold water swimming before work um it's just it's my happy place so it, it feels like i'm on holiday in the middle of london it's just beautiful um and it just sets me up for the day as part of that so with work um i've set up a cold water swimming club and if people go in from work under 10 degrees because there's a group of people that go there and if you go under 10 degrees you get a swimming hat if you've got a swimming hat you can recognize everybody else with that swimming hat in there so you know that it's from work um so it's sort of really good for everyone's physical and mental well-being from that point of view um and then we've got a whatsapp group and we just share pictures of us you know or videos of us swimming somewhere in the world like um one of my colleagues showing videos and or pictures of them swimming in like scotland or oxford or abroad or wherever it's just you know a nice thing of sharing and it's a really nice thing to have next to work and is this how you would you would suggest if anyone's interested in starting up with open water swimming it's best to join a club or a group Uh, and take it from there so i certainly wouldn't do it on your own um i think it's um about finding a friend particularly at the moment with covid you probably want to just have one friend you can't meet any more than that but you want someone to look out for you you should probably swim with a tow float if you're going to go out in open water but if you're going to be swimming in a cold water pool there's always people around there's we're quite lucky in london we've got three or four cold water pools that you can swim in that are unheated throughout the year um the outdoor swimming society has um, some resources that may be useful to people um there are groups that do swim together there's a group you swim down at dover on a daily basis called the dover darlings and they're based on 
um, a group, a really lovely group is from in Northern Ireland every day in Donagadee, which is where you go for the, the start of your North Channel swim. And there's a group there called the Chunky Dunkers. And people from all around the world go there to swim with them before they try the North Channel. And for them, it's it's been set up by a chap called Martin Strain. And it's all about mental health there. So there's lots of people that you can meet to um, to swim with. And I would suggest joining up with a group in, to begin with um, in order to facilitate that even. Yeah. That sounds like a Interesting. Good plan. So I guess we also need to talk a little bit about your job. <laughs> Um, yeah. and especially now with with covid and everything can you tell us a little bit about um your experience so far so i, mean, I work in a hospital in london i was um we were at the forefront and the brunt of the first wave i was seconded to um the nightingale hospital in east london which was meant to be a field hospital which never really took off thank goodness because it wasn't required we just about got by so I was seconded there for about five weeks um I developed COVID myself at some point I think where I came out of a rash um I didn't have the classical symptoms but I've got antibodies suggesting that I have had it at some point um and then I've come back to my base hospital and I'm sort of in the step down area which is harder to to step down a response is harder than to stand up a response in the first instance because there was a wave coming it's very easy to step one up and stepping it down is more difficult and then what happens next is really difficult to predict because we're not allowed to cancel our our normal services and inverted commas and we have to continue as if there is no covid but whilst trying to manage covid at the same time so as opposed to it being a a tsunami or a tidal wave that we had last time i think this is more like the ebb and flow of the lunar tides with sort of a high spring tide and we're just constantly being washed up thankfully we've not been affected quite as badly this time as we were last time so that's where we are so i i, I work with a team who who will be looking after patients you know with the condition whether i'm immune i don't know and you're always managing that uncertainty as, as a male who's just a tiny bit older and got a slightly high BMI. Um, I'm probably high risk. And actually, that was one of the things I didn't have the mental and physical crutch of open water swimming. So while you're dealing with it, if I was driving somewhere, I did actually find myself crying in the car at points because thinking you or colleagues might get affected, you or colleagues might die you might be high risk you might be putting yourself in in the middle of this and it's it's actually really difficult and as as soon as we could get back to some resemblance of open water swimming it was really really needed i mean the whatsapp group we have in the hospital was just it was almost grieving the loss of um the loss of that crutch of swimming in cold water and physical exercise for people that that was what they did and, and yeah, I don't want to go over that too much. And I don't want to make it too dramatic. But that's sort of where we are. No, but yeah. I think that was I think that was a it was pretty astute. I think it was a case for a lot of people, not necessarily just open water swimming or cold water swimming, but just not being able to exercise. I mean, my mother was the same. She was she was in her seventies and had a walking group that she went out with every Friday to the Dales or to the Pennines, and and you know that stopped, and that was her you know mental crutch as well. Uh, and I think that has a has had a quite a big impact on a lot of people. 
not being able to physically exercise at all is uh, is pretty yeah it's pretty also painful. a big um, affects the mental health a lot not just physically. Yeah, so i think there's been medic uh, mental and physical deconditioning um due to covid and that, that's been one of the sort of unseen effects um of of the pandemic which is ongoing and i'm not going to get into politics but it's you know it's it's, it's a big complex uh, mess really isn't it uh, have you had any experience with uh, with younger individuals as well being affected and and having longer term effects, or do you not really see see that so much? Yeah, the the whole the whole um, spectrum. So it, it's difficult. It's also difficult because you know if you're in and in all in all honesty, we were relatively lucky, although it was stressful. We were allowed out of the house and we had a social life in inverted commas because you went to work and you spoke to your colleagues and it wasn't like you were stuck at home like certain people were and actually maybe that was easier. But then having the um the physical and then the emotional um uh, hardship from work and not being able to go and exercise um was really difficult and actually that's my that's my zen time that's my meditation that's how i get over things that's how i try and park and compartmentalize things and so not having that was very difficult but you know i i think healthcare work is at least we could leave the house um which a lot of people couldn't do so you say you've had the full spectrum of of people i think you know you have identified certain people that may may be a higher risk group um and it seems like especially a lot of younger people think you know it's not so bad i'm young so i'm not going to get badly affected do you think for the people that you see is it kind of somewhat easy to predict who's going to get worse or not or is it really like you, you can't predict beforehand who's going to develop a very severe disease there's certainly females are relatively protected and um, as you get older you're higher risk and but it's harder to predict otherwise it's a bit you know 99 times out of 100 somebody is not going to get adverse effects but some anybody could get an adverse effect and this has been a great a great mimic of other diseases so historically the mimics of other diseases which could be as anything so covid hasn't just presented as chest infections and sort of thing um or loss of smell it's it's, it's presented as a multitude of other things neurological problems and etc and, and classically um is sort of gastrointestinal upset for example uh, which is what I had with a rash but historically they said like TB and syphilis were the great mimics they were the, they were the things that would mimic lots of other diseases and could catch you out and actually COVID has been a, a really great mimic and ha- can present in any way and the there are certainly a, a cohort of patients that might get what's what's being termed long COVID or chronic COVID yeah. um, or the long-term effects and there's probably a number of different ways of that some of them will have long-term breathlessness some of them neurological problems some of them psychological problems etc and it's it's difficult to put people into um, those those sort of pigeonholes as I heard one professor say at the very beginning I think they thought COVID was going to be the polio of our time yeah. with the long-term effects seen for years and I think we will see that in bit in a cohort of people. Does that mean that it's hard for you to diagnose? Like, are you really reliant on good, efficient testing in order to, you know, properly diagnose people or if, if the symptoms are so diverse when they come in? 
So people could be anything from um, no symptoms whatsoever all the way through to needing to go to intensive care. So they could be anywhere on that spectrum. So th there's people that are tested and come back as positive and I'm surprised because I wouldn't have thought it was. There's people that have obviously got barn door um, COVID, um, but it's it, it could be anywhere. So actually some of our rapid tests can come back quickly, but some of them take um, two to three days. So actually you're you're making a clinical assessment on something which could be could present in a very disparate way between different people. So if they're coming in and it's not for shortness of breath, I guess you're pretty limited to the test that you can use because can't you use a CT scan to see um, on the lungs pretty clearly if you're still waiting for a for a test? Obviously, we can't CT everyone. That's what radiation, yeah. um, and particularly younger patients, we wouldn't want to CT them unnecessarily. Um, so generally, we're diagnosing it with blood tests and chest X-rays, um, and perhaps CT. But we would normally reserve that for those we're not sure what's going on. But also, there's a pro, um, there's a procoagulant or prothrombotic or clotting problem associated with a lot of these patients and they could end up with clots in their lungs and it's probably inflammation in the lungs causing local irritation causing clots there we're diagnosing that on cts but the actual positive covid swab is um is something that is a throat or nose swab that comes back um which you know can be a fast swab or could be something that takes a day or two depending on what's available in the um, clinical suspicion etc and, and what you're doing it for and then the antibody tests are something that look backwards and show whether you've been exposed to it at some point um, we don't know what the relevance of a lot of these tests are you could be carrying covid for several weeks after you in fact had the infection yeah. um, it's been positive for up to a month after somebody's had proven covid so it's hard to know you know what what it means if you're found to be carrying um, this virus that seems to be where we always end up in these conversations there are just more more question marks than than answers yeah, i think and they will be the case for Still. a few years um i think we're, we're running short on time so i think maybe we could just uh, end on a hopefully a happy note and find out what's uh, what your next challenge is going to be so my next challenge so currently i'm attempting to as part of my grieving process at the time I started writing a book of some of my swimming and work exploits to degree which is um one of the nicknames I've given myself is a superhero named the storm it's just one of those stupid things that stuck and I'm known as the storm in um, swimming circles because I will literally try and swim through anything um so we've got a book hopefully which will come out called swimming through the eye of the storm um uh, uh, coaching other people i was meant to be swimming around manhattan this year but that got cancelled mm. um which would be part of the triple crown along with kathleen in the english channel that would be sort of a, a completion of something i'm just surviving really at the moment in all honesty i've got everything on hold i might try and do some cold water swims in the future an ice mile or something like that which is a mile under five degrees um i don't know i've slightly lost my mojo at the moment in all honesty with being unclear where we're going next right. um so i don't know what's next really who knows yeah you're running out of challenges well there's plenty of challenges out there it's yeah. just it's getting yourself up for them and um you know i'm sometimes not up for a challenge until the week before but i really want to physically do something like catalina was really difficult because i had no interest in doing the swim whatsoever so doing that for 12 13 hours was just 
horrendous because I had no I had no want to do it. We talked about success here, but actually what I'd rather phrase it as is, is reducing your risk of failure. Nobody says with a channel swim, how long did it take you? They just go, oh, wow, you swim the channel. And so I, I liken it a bit to Dave Brailsford's um, marginal gains. I, I liken it to marginal blames and say that this is reducing um, your risk of failure. What can you do every single day in, a, in, a, in an improvement cycle to try and reduce your risk of failure? So each swim, I'd try a new pair of goggles or try a hat or try a feeding regime or, and just go through and get my body used to um, that total body confusion of swimming in the middle of the night. So I would get up and swim in the middle of the night. So you have to be used to getting up, having breakfast, going down to a swim, getting yourself mentally and physically ready at a time when your body is screaming to go back to bed yeah. and all your hormones are at the lowest level um, and your stress hormones are low. And how do you train yourself into that? So it's a bit like night workers. They need to, you need to get used to working a night shift. Mm. Uh, are you going to cover all of these topics in the book? You're going to talk about all of these? Uh, probably. I'll probably go through it all in a bit more detail. But I've realised that I sound a bit like a psychopath. So I'm not really sure what I'll put in there. I'm going to be buying it. So if someone's listening to this and they want to know more about you, where do they find you? When is the book coming out? You've got to name a date today. Well, I'm, I'm just going to publish it in the next month or so. It's about three quarters written. So um, we'll see. If you want to know more about me, you can just Google me. There's various uh, or other websites available that you can look me up. Um, I might look to some more ventures in the future with regards to open water swimming, some more coaching, maybe maybe some mental coaching. So I think that's one side that isn't really dealt with well. Maybe looking at other things like, um, I don't know, merchandise or things like that. I don't know. The future's bright. It certainly sounds that way. I wish we'd covered a bit more yeah. the mental aspects, actually. Maybe we can do it again. Have another podcast where you talk about uh, the book and the mental uh, training. Mm, it's super interesting. Sounds good. Brilliant. Well, thanks so much, Thank Nick. You. Really appreciate it. No worries. Thanks for having me. Did you know that cold exposure is a stressor that has been linked to improvements in health and possibly longevity? After speaking to Nick, I'm not exactly convinced that swimming the North Channel has a net positive health impact, but maybe the occasional cold shower would be worth trying. If nothing else, it would probably be a good mental training, and that is probably one of my key takeaways from this conversation. Our mind needs exercise and recovery, just as much as the rest of the body does. If you like this podcast, make sure that you subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes. And if you have any questions, comments or feedback on the topics that we've discussed, we'd love for you to get in touch. You can reach us directly by email, podcast at meliohealth.com or if you make a post on social media, please tag us using hashtag WDGLL. And if you do like our podcast, please help spread the word. You can share episodes with friends and family directly from your podcast app or leave a rating or review to help even more people find us. Join us in discovering what good looks like so that you and your loved ones can stay younger for longer.